Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Awesome. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Isaac. Together with my wife, we've been part of this church since September 2019. Three years, nearly. Uh, We are three weeks into our summer preaching series on Old Testament characters. This week, we're going to be looking at Samuel. Uh, I'm going to start by bringing us up to speed with the events of Genesis to Samuel in just a few minutes, so tune in. God's plan in Genesis is to commune with his creation, to be their God and to rule over them, yet know his creation intimately and to be fully known. He gives them everything they need to flourish, and as part of that, their free will, the ability to choose what they will do with the abundance of creation that God has given them. We see humankind listening to God, uh, to God's perfect creation for all of 24 verses before they listen to the voice of the enemy embodied in a serpent. We see in Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent making them doubt the moral certainty of God. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Humankind then separated from God in pursuit of their own way, deciding that they can rule over their lives better without God at the center. But God, because of his love for us, begins a journey of reconciling his creation to himself. He makes a covenant with Abraham that from his lineage will come a nation, the Israelites. That will be God's holy people. If they walk in his ways, they'll live in peace and prosper. Uh, And if they follow their own ways, then they'll lead themselves to destruction. We see Moses lead the Israelites out of slavery, followed by Joshua leading them into the promised land. When Joshua and his generation died, so did the Israelites' knowledge of God. They begin worshipping other gods and idols. Here, God brings in judges. Uh, who are instituted as leaders over the Israelites to bring them out the hands of their enemies. Repeatedly, we see the same pattern every time one of the judges dies. Uh, God's chosen people turning away from his way of living to sinful practices and idolatry. Each time, God disciplines them, Israel repents, and the judge delivers them from their enemies, bringing them back to him. Uh, We see a similar story of 12 judges bringing us swiftly into 1 Samuel. When we arrive at the person of Samuel, he is first a judge over Israel. When Samuel gets old, he instates his sons to be judges over Israel, but they give in to bribes and pervert justice. The elders decide to turn away from God's ideal of leadership and conclude that they want to be like the other nations, to have a king over them who fights their battles. The story of Samuel is therefore of an obedient and faithful judge who sees the transfer of power in Israel from a theocracy ruled by God via mediating judges to a monarchy ruled by kings, and from Samuel being the last judge over the people to being the first prophet under the kings. With me? (laughs) Great. As we go through Samuel, the overriding theme I want to suggest we see is one of intimacy-fueled obedience to the Lord. Just a nice light topic for a Sunday morning. But stick with me, we've got 23 and a half minutes approximately. Um, The word obedience comes with a lot of baggage. Oh, I tried to do some little emojis there, but they've kind of freaked out. Anyway, that's uh, intimacy-fueled obedience. Uh, The word obedience... (laughs) comes with a lot of baggage. Um, Perhaps it evokes ideas of suppression and dictatorship. Maybe you read it more like this, um, where the authority has certainly been forced over people, a a top-down obedience, if you will. Obedience is certainly an idea that appears to stand opposed to our own personal freedom. And the prevailing experience of many, unfortunately, in society is a distrust at best and a lived experience at worst of the fallible nature of others, of spouses, of 
governments, of institutions, and of churches. It may be easy to conclude that we are best placed to rule every area of our own lives, which hopefully I'll convince you we're not. Um, the dictionary defines obedience as compliance with an order, request, or submission to another's authority. It's important to understand at the core of obedience is a self-initiated submission under another's authority, not one that is commanded by force, but in that submission there will be times when it is against our own preference or ideals. Now, I want to suggest that our obedience to God, uh, birthing from knowing him well, an intimacy-fueled obedience. I've defined it as this, trusting God as the highest and primary voice of authority over our lives, our love for him founded upon the moral certainty of his character being good, trustworthy, and faithful to fulfill what he promises. I'm just going to read that one more time. Trusting God completely as the highest and primary voice of authority over our lives, our love for him founded upon our moral certainty of his character being good, trustworthy, and faithful to fulfill what he promises. Now, Samuel's life helpfully gives us the framework to answer these three topics. How we are obedient, uh, when and why we should be obedient, and what obedience looks like played out for Samuel and also for us. Before we get to that, I want to suggest, uh, I want to look briefly at Samuel's origin story, uh, the story of his faithful mother, Hannah. Um, she traveled each year to the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was with her husband to make sacrifices to the Lord. And we read this in 1 Samuel 1. If anyone's got their Bibles with them, um, do jump there. I'll give you a second. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. In this passage, we see the very start of Samuel's life marked by a monumental act of submission to, God's, uh, submission to God by his mother, Hannah. Hannah longed desperately for a son. It was the norm in those times for a man to have more than one wife. And Hannah watched her husband's other wife, uh, Penina. That's right. We practiced that like four times. Anyway, Penina have children while she remained childless. Uh, the Bible says that Hannah was her husband's preferred wife, perhaps an indication of the relative status of the women, which could suggest that Hannah was uh, his primary wife. It's possible that Elkanah took Penina as a second wife because of Hannah's barrenness. This passage tells us that um, in deep anguish, Hannah cries out to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and makes a vow that if God were to give her a son, she'll offer him back to God's service for all the days of his life. God is faithful to Hannah in giving her Samuel, and in turn, Hannah performs a beautiful act of submission and obedience to God in giving the child she so desperately longed for back to God. Later on in these passages, uh, we see God honor this act of obedience to Hannah, uh, and she goes on to have more children. So even the start of Samuel's life is marked by his mother's obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. She obeys because she trusts the Lord. Uh, moving on to Samuel. We're in a time in the Bible where God speaking directly to his people was not common. Uh, the Bible literally says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. And we find Samuel lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. The home of God's presence was, was kept. 
Uh, at this point, Eli, uh, the priest that Samuel is serving under, has been rejected by God because of his sons blaspheming against God and Eli, Eli's failure to restrain them. In contrast to this, we see Samuel devoting himself to God's service in the temple, a life that was quite literally given up uh, as an offering to God. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 4 to 9. The moment the Lord calls Samuel. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. I haven't put uh, verse numbers in there, but in verse 7, it says there that Samuel did not yet know the Lord personally. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So up to this point in Samuel's life, he's been faithful in service to God in the temple because of what he's been told about God's faithfulness to Israel and faithfulness to his mother Hannah. I mean, this reflects uh, largely what the Israelites have lived up to in this point, being obedient, or perhaps more accurately, trying and frequently failing to be obedient, to God, not from a personal or intimate relationship with him, but in obedience to judges who have communicated the will of God to them and reminded them of God's faithfulness in the past. I can certainly relate to this as my experience of growing up in a Christian home where for the early years of my faith, I lived as a Christian because it seemed good to do so and through my parents showing me God's faithfulness in their lives. Uh, maybe you can relate slightly differently to that feeling that you couldn't quite place all your uh, whole life on trusting a book without trusting or knowing the author. This passage whispers to us of Jesus that obedience isn't meant to be a book of rules. It's meant to be an intimate relationship with a personable God. I mean, that's what Samuel gets here. He gets a one-to-one -one communion with God, not mediated by an angel, but directly to the Father. I'd suggest it's because Samuel's made himself available to God. After the great news, and the great news for us is that intimacy with God is not a rare occurrence anymore. Intimacy-fueled obedience can be our reality, and grace, thankfully, means that we never lose that access to God. Jeremiah Johnson puts it quite aptly. Jesus commands wholehearted obedience, yet invites us into a red-hot love affair with him. When we attempt to obey God apart from intimacy with him, we model ourselves after the Pharisees, and our obedience is motivated by religious legalism. You may not be able to relate to that love affair, but certainly we can all relate to the hot today, I think. <laughs> this is what the Lord says to Samuel back in Samuel. See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I'll carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Now, imagine having to tell someone, especially someone that you've served under, uh, that God was writing them out of his story because of their disobedience. And yet Samuel, despite being afraid in this passage we read, relayed God's message to Eli. 
For Samuel, obedience to God in this moment looked like hearing a direct word from the Lord and uh, having the courage to speak it, even though the news wasn't easy. If you've... Uh, has anyone been to Centre Parks? Other water parks available? Yeah, a few. Uh, if you've ever been to Centre Parks, you'll get... Uh, to get into the water park, you have to walk through this kind of very chilly shower. Uh, does anyone know what I mean? You like go through this freezing cold water bath. It's not very pleasant. I think they'd say it's to clean you off, but uh, who knows. Um, you know that there's joy of water slides on the other side, but there is a moment of having to bring yourself to just go through the chilly shower. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's the same with obedience, that um, between us and obedience to God is a swallowing of our own pride or concern of what others may think of us. At times, obedience, we may find ourselves out of our comfort zone, but it takes our love for God or our love for water slides to be bigger than our fear. I thought that was a very apt analogy. What do you reckon? Um, Charles Spurgeon is a slightly more straight shooter and says it this way. It's no new thing for Christians to know their duty, to have their conscience enlightened about it, and yet to neglect it. I wrote pause. Anyway. So moving on to our second point, the construction of an Ebenezer. When we reach 1 Samuel 7, oh, Lily's coming up to do a preach. Sorry, am I not very good? Lily's going to, okay, no. Uh, when we reach 1 Samuel 7, the Philistines have grown in power. The Ark of the Covenant has now just been returned to Israel after being lost to the Philistines uh, three chapters earlier, when Israel have tried to use it uh, as a magic trophy to guarantee victory instead of trusting in God himself. The Israelites, in their joy, gather on a mountain, uh, turning back to the Lord and ridding themselves of idols. Whilst they're all gathered on the mountain, the Philistines try to come and attack them again. Uh, this time, they have humbled themselves before God, and as Samuel offers up offerings and prays for them, the Lord thunders with a mighty sound, throwing the Philistines into confusion, and the Israelites run out after the Philistines, striking them down. We read this in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Then the Lord, then Samuel, took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now, we've just got back from a little bit of time in Scotland, having walked up Ben Nevis while I was there. Uh, it's the tallest mountain in the UK, and it's almost a certainty that the top of it, uh, you'll, it'll be completely cloud-covered. You can barely see five meters in front of you. This photo is not from our trip, because it literally would have been just a white photo. Um, as you're walking up there, you get these cairns, which we see here, these kind of piles of stones. And uh, now they both mark the top of the mountain, but they're also used as a trail marker. These piles of stones are there to point you in the direction of the top, keeping you on the straight path and remind you of where you've come from for the journey back down. Now, on our descent, the cloud had slightly lifted a little bit, and we realized that a few meters from the path was a sheer cliff edge. But thanks to these helpful stones, we didn't actually meet that cliff edge face to face. Now, in Hebrew, the word Ebenezer literally translates as this, a cold-hearted Debbie Downer who despises Christmas. Unbelievable, right? The Bible is, is, is wonderful. Um, it doesn't mean that, but that, I thought that was funny. Um, the Ebenezer, it translates as this. It translates as stone of help. And I've sort of separated it there. Eben, stone, Ezer, help. Samuel set this up. He wanted the people to remember not just for a few days, but for years to come, how God had come to the rescue of his people when they humbled themselves before him. And that key phrase that he speaks to them in that moment, till now the Lord has helped us. 
the Israelites are not at the end yet. They're still going to have a lot of challenges to come. And so the Ebenezer was a reminder to them to keep the faith in the days ahead, to stay close to God at every time as he is the one their help would come from. Not as an idol and not as a substitution of God, nor God as a magic trophy to go to for help, but the living God himself. So why is obedience something to run after? Because for us also, thus far, the Lord has helped us. In any situation we find ourselves in, he is there. Perhaps again today, you need to remind yourself of that, where God has been faithful in your own life and trust that he'll continue to be good. You might consider commemorating the times uh, that God has been faithful to you in a visual way, framing a photo of a significant time, reading back on a journal and seeing answers to prayer. And my wife has a couple of beautiful tattoos that commemorate pinnacle times in her walk with Jesus. Some physical sign, some outward sign that will remind you, not, you don't need to remind God, but remind you of his faithfulness in your life when obedience feels hard. And when do we need to be obedient to the Lord? Well, like the Israelites, we should come to the Lord regularly for help in big things and in small things, and to not become complicit to think that he's just a magic trophy that we come to and wave around only when we're in the midst of trouble. Moving on to our, our last point, the destruction of Amalek. Now, Samuel comes to Saul with a word from the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says this, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. It's quite clear here uh, that Saul will see victory in this battle. And it fulfills a promise, actually, that was made back to Moses in Exodus 17, which you can go and read. But Saul isn't obedient to the Lord. He decides to spare the king, Agag, who embodies the very evil that, commanded, that, that God commanded him to destroy, along with the best of the sheep and the livestock. He goes down to meet Samuel, uh, and when he first greets him, he, he's very confident. He says, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Uh, and as soon as he's confronted by Samuel, Samuel says, I can, what is this bleating of sheep that I can hear? He changes his tone and says, the soldiers brought them from the Amicalites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord. But I mean, we totally destroyed the rest. Like everything else is gone. Now, the very first day I went on uh, with Kimra, we went to York for the afternoon. I'd spent the morning making a short film in a donut shop, uh, the opposite side of Sheffield to the station, which is where we were based. Now, we agreed to meet at 1 p.m., which I read as 1,300 hours and translated in my head to 3 p.m. You know what I mean? People do that, right? That happens. <laughs> Hence, when Kimra messages me at 10 to 1 asking if I was on time and I'm still making donuts, panic ensued. So I put down my dreams of winning an Oscar for my donut documentary, which never got finished, <laughs> grabbed a couple of condolence donuts, and pedaled as fast as I could to the station. Thankfully, Kimra is incredibly patient and waited for me and my reconciliation donuts, which I think we actually have a picture of. There you go. <laughs> I was 40 minutes late, which is not ideal for a first date, but it all worked out happily and I never had to tell the story again. So, um, <laughs> whilst the donuts were good, being attentive to my future wife would have been better. It's our attentiveness to Jesus that will lead us to action. We read this in 1 Samuel 15. Does the Lord delight in burnt donut offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. 
This is probably my favorite verse in 1 Samuel. I think I read this and thought, I don't know why, but I need to talk about this verse. I'll read that again. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. See, Saul has substituted his obedience to God for following his own agenda. And he's tried to pull the wool over Samuel's eyes. Samuel can hear the bleating. There's a lot of wool to be had. Saul has put his obedience in his works and his sacrifice rather than in listening to God himself. Uh, Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, sets up two ways of obedience to God. Uh, Now, one is to say that obedience is entirely about dutiful adherence to God's guidance. We can tie the specific amount and tick the box. That's the quota of generosity this month. Uh, We're to love our neighbor, giving them a courteous greeting in the streets, but avoiding anything that will actually cost us any more time than that. You might call it the lowest common denominator of obedience or the minimum viable product. This duty-based obedience is, an, is uh, sorry, this duty-based obedience is obedience that acts but does not feel God's presence in those actions. Now, the problem of this exclusive literal obedience is that it's possible to meet God's commandments, uh, the commands of God in our lives, and not be changed to be more like Jesus. Essentially, this is what we see in the Pharisees. Uh, the, uh, yeah, I mean, this is what we see the Pharisees do in the New Testament. This kind of obedience alone leads us into a place of shame and of judgment. The second way that Bonhoeffer describes obedience is he says, uh, we don't want to be legalistic about obedience like the Pharisees, which is good. Uh, What Jesus actually wants of us is faith, uh, which we can do without obeying his commands. We can go on living our own way because we can come back to him because of grace. The reality is that living by faith is the ultimate goal of the Christian life for us. We must first practice time and time again our single-minded obedience to him to develop this faith. Again, some wisdom from Jeremiah Johnson. If we ever find ourselves in a place of abiding in him without obeying his commands, we've fallen into hyper-grace theology that will eventually lead into sin. Obedience is not just an Old Testament ideal. Uh, Jesus affirms it, if you're wondering if it's in the New Testament. He affirms the importance of it when he speaks to his disciples. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And Paul, uh, and Paul in Romans again affirms it. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, David, who we find slightly later, who is anointed by Samuel as king, is kind of the poster child for this intimacy-fueled obedience. Whilst he fails monumentally at times, he knows what it is to, be joyf- to joyfully follow the Lord out of the place of his relationship. Dancing shamelessly before the Lord when the ark is carried back into the city. And in Psalms, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. See, it is possible to live from a trust-based obedience, a, a reverence for God's word, and never develop that relationship with him. But to be able to live in this paradoxical understanding... Uh, of obedience that isn't motivated by shame like the Pharisees or isn't a form of duty that we listen uh, that we actually listen to the Holy Spirit's voice over our lives and also submit our will to God and the trusted leaders he'd place in our lives it's very easy to bring our own agenda to the table and to actually mask it as obedience like Saul did the only person we're falling here is ourselves we can't fool God and so what obedience to God looks like is humbling ourselves before him admitting to ourselves our own agenda and abiding with the Holy Spirit, listening to his voice. 
a common uh, vineyard phrase, and Mike Pilavacci is summed up in this gif. So if I can uh, just get the band to come up as we come into land. <laughs> All right, that's enough. We'll, uh, that's enough landing. Great, perfect. Awesome. So when Israel found that their judges were fallible, they thought what they needed was an earthly king to save them. But they didn't need a judge or a king to save them from their earthly enemies. They needed a Messiah to save them from themselves and to reconcile them wholly back to their heavenly king. Samuel had raised up an Ebenezer, the stone of help for the people to remember that God had shown his faithfulness to his covenant people, even when they were not faithful. Jesus likewise humbled himself and spilled his blood, the pinnacle demonstration of God's faithfulness to redeem us on the Ebenezer of Calvary, that stone where help will always be found. We can humble ourselves before God and find help and restoration into a life of wholehearted discipleship to Jesus, held together by grace. Again, those words of Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the end goal of obedience is a deeper relationship with the Father and an availability to be used by him to redeem the world around us. By obeying him, we become carriers of his blessing. Jesus is not a hard taskmaster. He's always for our good. So a couple of questions for you. Are, are there areas of your life where you are following Jesus out of duty or habit rather than intimacy? Are there any areas of your life where you've tapped out of obedience altogether? I'll just read those again. Are there areas of your life where you're following Jesus out of duty or habit rather than of intimacy? Are there areas of your life where you've tapped out of obedience to Jesus altogether? So why don't we stand just as we finish? Perhaps if you're, um, if you're new to faith, a response today might look like trying out this God who promises to you to be worthy of a devoted life. Or maybe for other of us in the room who have known Jesus for a while, our response may look like getting really honest with God about the areas where we have strayed from obedience and intimacy and let him show us grace and a better way. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.